Hey, what's good, people? Just a heads up, we recorded this back in May, and we did not have our sound life together, and so we really needed to get it, and we finally got it. Uh, but just to let you know, this episode is going to be kind of shoddy in some spaces, but the content is good, like really, really good. So we appreciate your patience and understanding and bearing through some of that uh, so that you can get to some of the good stuff. And without further ado, folks, let's go. Enjoy the latest episode. Appreciate you. Peace. This episode of Eye to Eye is brought to you by Janique Locks. If you're looking to get started, there's no better place. She specializes in all kinds. Dreadlocks, micro locks, sister locks, lock extensions, instant locks, interlocking, and more. If you're in the 757, please don't hesitate to contact her. You can find her on Instagram at Janique Locks. That's G-E-N-I-Q-U-E-L-O-C-S, Janique Locks. Or you can find her at her website, JaniqueLocks.com. Janique Locks, where locks are envied. All right, let's go ahead and start this podcast, man. Ladies and gentlemen, hear ye, hear ye. Am I, am I doing too much though? <laughs> well, I mean, if you start playing trumpets or something like that and announcing, you know, the, the coming of the next king or something, you might be. But but do your thing. Do your thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm just trying different stuff, bro. I'm just trying, I'm just trying different stuff, man. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, once again to I to I, short for inspired to inspire. The podcast is all about being open, honest, real, having conversations about life and faith. And you know that we are willing to boldly go where most folks ain't trying to. Um, and uh, I don't know, this could be prophetic or, or whatever, depending on when we actually release this. Uh, but uh, I think this conversation is definitely a, a, a game changer. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and put a humble brag out there, mainly because it has nothing to do with us. Everything to do with the person we're having a conversation with. We'll talk about him in just a second. But as always, my name is Jordan. And my name is Devin. And we are most certainly glad to have you rocking with us. Um, right, man. I mean, you know, honestly, this is one of those weeks where it really puts my suffering into perspective. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm wonderful compared to uh, the other injustices currently going on in the world. <laughs> Talk about that today as well. <laughs> you don't say. Or maybe a lot of it, it, it neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, we'll definitely uh, we'll touch base on that. But I'm glad you're doing good, sir. I am. Good. Um, and now we have the honor and the pleasure of introducing to you guys uh, somebody who I will now deem my friend, whether he wants it or not. <laughs> it's too late. I am clinging to him, but mainly because this man loves Jesus in a real way, and he wants to make sure that it is reflected <laughs> properly. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, but we're talking to a, a good man. His name is uh, Brandon J. O'Brien. I'll let him tell you about himself in just a second. But Brandon, man, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this. Good, good. I'm glad you're excited. Um, I just want people to know in advance also uh, that in the Twitter sphere, I, I got some real cred uh, today because Brandon liked one of my tweets. Uh, I'm just going to put that in the atmosphere. I just want y'all to know you're dealing with a real one now. <laughs> dealing with an absolute real one uh, because he liked, for no other reason uh, than, than he, liked, he liked my tweet. One step closer to that verified check mark, Jordan. <laughs> That's you know that's really what it's all about, man. It ain't about nothing else. It's not about. I mean, of course, lift his name on high, but after that, man, it's all about that sweet and popular. <laughs> Verified for Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Instagram is is what it is. You can take a good picture and just be really, really popular on Instagram, but you actually have to say something on Twitter. Right. Uh, I agree. Yeah. yeah. If you don't say something on Twitter, you just whack. So. <laughs> 
you know, I don't know, maybe it's the narrative me. It's, it's maybe a, it's that MDiv degree speaking and, and the fact <laughs> that I might actually want a doctorate. I have no idea why, but, you know, uh, <laughs> be that as it may. Neither know there. So, hey, let me shut up. Brandon, uh, brother, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us who you are, what you do. My wife and I live in Manhattan. I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and uh, we've been seeing a lot of each other lately. <laughs> and... Uh, to help with and uh i don't know how much <laughs> education happened but we survived oh man you know it wasn't a day in a hammock but it was good to be off work for a day so, <laughs> um we've been here about three years and uh i grew up in arkansas and my wife grew up in singapore and so we've had we joke with our kids about how different our childhood experiences were and now our kids get neither of those things. Um, and so now we're experiencing it during coronavirus lockdown. We're on, uh, we're almost in at the end of the second month here. So, which is, uh, an organization that out of Redeemer Presbyterian church, uh, founded by Tim Keller and in cities around the world to help with thing that's required for church planting and evangelism and other things in complex, diverse, urban context for ministry. My job is content development, so uh, my primary goal is, uh, in addition to helping get things to press that Tim Keller writes, the primary thing is and coach and platform contributors from around the world who have uh, a whole lot of great insight into what ministry ought to look like in the places where they serve. So, and so. That's amazing. When are you going to start planting churches on Antarctica? It seems. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've put it out there a time or two in in one of our newsletters to just say, if we, uh, if anybody's willing. I was going to say. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it was told to go into all the world, not just because if it's cold, you don't go there. I mean, gosh. that's right. There's six or seven researchers there, or something, right? That surely need uh, surely need a church. Yeah, I mean, that's enough for a Bible study. Shoot, where two or more are gathered, you know, we don't even need seven. There you go. Way to save the dad joke. Way to save the dad joke, brother. I am a dad. So. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you know, actually, I'm. I'm gonna shut up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Of course, you're playing dad because you're grading uh, papers right now. So you you feel the Dude. frustration of raising children now. <laughs> no, I don't. I feel the frustration of, of what would probably lead to homicide. That's, that's what I feel. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, I don't. I don't know nothing about this because I didn't have to feed any. Well, I mean, I don't know if you want to call teaching them feeding them. That's one thing. Sure, call it a metaphor. But um, no. I, but I do feel like it's costing me a lot. It is. It's cost me a lot of time and it's cost me a lot of brain cells to try and process this. I love my students. Let me stop right now before I just... <laughs> Always with the qualifiers. <laughs> you go from homicide to I love them. I love them. <laughs> you know, it, word but. So I'm just not going to say the word but. See, I think the problem is teaching is a lot more like cooking than it is feeding. You cook and prepare everything. doesn't mean they're going to eat it. So... Okay, see, you're being you're being messy because I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna run with it, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, so we're having a conversation. And let it not be about that because if it is, then y'all might hear me cry for no reason on, <laughs> on this podcast. I wanted to, you know, kind of gather your mindset and I wanted to gather your opinion for a few reasons. This is being recorded in May. Uh, but chances are we are going to be releasing this um, in anywhere between September and November. Because in my heart, I wanted to settle within myself. Poetic thought. Got to use the big words. Got to love the big words. Uh, but no, just kind of the dispersed mindset of different individuals who live across America. Who are not where they are from. Um, the division uh, that comes from it. And probably the years and years in which uh, environments have fostered this this thought process. So, sir, in just about every one of that is actually a part of one of your books, not from around here. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wanted you to just kind of speak to your experience and and how it's kind of shaped your current thinking. I mentioned that I 
now live in Manhattan. Tell people at home that not coronavirus day, you know, but on a normal work day, subway in Manhattan, then live in the entire state of Arkansas. <laughs> but, you know, uh, certain things in Manhattan take the entire population of Arkansas and put them to do anything. And that's what it's <laughs> like, you know, to live in Manhattan. So in a small town in the country in Arkansas, but spent the summers in Louisiana on a lake with my grandparents in the middle of nowhere. And so it was very shaped by rural and small town life um, and by the kind of angelical depends on how generous, you know, or uh, cranky <laughs> you want to be about the terminology. But so then my wife and I got married right after college, moved to the Chicago suburbs, lived there for about eight years. Rural and small town experience to suburban experience. Uh, we moved very briefly back to Arkansas. Uh, before moving to Manhattan, where we now have this, you know, really intense urban experience. And um, experience has been that living in Chicago, I would hear people talk about rural and small town people, and I would get the jokes and the stereotypes, and I would think, you know, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, some of the things that you're saying are not entirely untrue, but they're so partially true that they're not helpful, right? They're, um, so they're based in some little piece of a fact, but it's not the whole truth. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I was learning to really appreciate and to love these folks in the suburbs of Chicago. But then I would hear the way my family would talk about that part of the country and think, no, you guys don't know what you're talking about either. <laughs> People and they're just because they don't look at you and say hi, when you walk past them on the street in Chicago, doesn't mean they're rude. It means that there's several million people here and you can't say hi to all of them. So I was just trying to kind of sort out and defend these two different places at the same time. What became really clear, um, which I probably should have seen sooner, but it all happened. This was all post, you know, last election. And so I think the 20, what year is this? So the 2016 election was the one that kind of brought a lot of the urban rural divide uh, language back up in, into conversation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I thought, you know, we've, the media is using very stereotyped and oversimplified language to talk about cities and to talk about suburbs and to talk about rural places. It became pretty clear to me pretty fast that that's not limited to the national conversation about politics, that even within the church, there's a very, there are very clear divisions. We'll hear talk about those Christians in middle America are the ones that are, you know, they're, they're all that's wrong with the church because they're homophobic and they're racist and they're, you know, whatever else. And then I would hear my friends in the middle of the country say those, you know, East Coast elite liberal Christians are the ones that are, that's the problem, all that's wrong with Christianity because they're, you know, they don't believe the Bible and, you know, all the, and there's this sort of divide that I thought it's not even just a regional political divide. It's a regional divide that also infects the way we think about our our own core identities. Are we mm. Christians first or are we committed to a region and regional values first? And then, and then how makes us view other people who don't live where we live and who don't have the experiences we have, that sort of thing. Spending um, is kind of in this new uh, cultural where it's like, it's kind of puts a lot of things like over the flame and distills them, you know, uh, to be in a place like Manhattan. And so, lot of my own childhood and um, previous adult life and even my faith and discipleship and thinking what kind of influence has the places I've lived um, had on what I believe as a Christian and when have I failed to recognize that it, it's because of where I lived that I thought those things, right? That we don't talk about geography all that much as a thing that is influential in our thought process, but I have begin to think that's actually very influential. And once you start to kind of go down that rabbit hole, there's a whole lot of things connected. I'm a relatively messy process of chasing out threads and seeing if I can find the end of it. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes it loops back into the knot and you just got to grab another one. And... So I don't know if that's a helpful summary, but 
I don't just ramble on forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's really helpful. I actually, I have, I have two questions that kind of came to mind when you were talking about that. So what's one worldview that you absolutely held on to growing up that got broken or changed as you moved to places like Chicago or Manhattan? And then the second one is what is one worldview that you might still be struggling with? So, and this is a uh, maybe non, non-religious thing first, but I think one of the big ones that especially as we think about inevitably happen in an election year and we're going to be tearing at each other's eyeballs, you know, before too much time passes oh, yeah. here in America. The thing is that I grew up thinking that like the way of life that we lived in uh, rural small town Arkansas was like the traditional American way of life. That's how we talked about it. Um, was that we have the sort of traditional American values we have the, of hard work and resourcefulness and you know faith and family and all this kind of stuff. Right. People who live in cities, etc., don't share those values. They're trying to take those. They're trying to those values with their liberal outlook. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting because, well, I mean, New York City was a current character for Arkansas became a state. <laughs> right. So even just in the sort of historical view of things, you're like, wait, when you say traditional values, what do you mean? Wow. <laughs> because there are other wow. parts of the country that are much older. Wow. Um, right. And I think that the other thing that changes is I think those traditional values do tend to be, um, but I think in retrospect now, I think that a lot of those traditional values are uniquely white cultural values. Maybe the better way to say that is we only recognize them when it's applied to white people. So when you look at South American immigrants and you see hard work, faith, and family, you think, <laughs> but those are our values. How do yep. we not recognize, how do we not see those values wow. when they're demonstrated by someone else? And so then you start thinking, well, hold on a second. Traditional. What do we mean by values? What? What? I think that's a worldview thing that just sort of cracked for me. That that there's not a part of the country that has the corner on traditional American values, right? Yeah. Um, this is a complicated place. It's a, a we have had been a complex landscape for a long time, and the idea that some portion of the population uh, is trying to preserve the purity of that, and some other portion is trying to destroy it, is just nonsense in my opinion right the the understanding of dialect this is one of the things i've always Mm. really thought about because i know that the last time i checked you know you can say something like i reckon or you went to chicago people talk about pop which is really weird to me but whatever Um, (laughs) it's all yeah yeah, it's all coke to me so yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) using sweepers and whatnot yeah exactly (laughs) all have uh, the same common ground, but we look at it uh, in, in a different lens. And mm. because it doesn't look like the lens that we see, uh, we just automatically assume that it can't be exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I like that term dialect. I think the um, the way I would describe it is that everyone everywhere is parochial, right? Everyone everywhere has a limited perception of reality in, a, in Manhattan. Place and it's such a densely populated place that you would think that people here would have a more world, and they may have a broader view of the world. But they don't necessarily have a broader view of America um, because your world here is actually pretty small anyway. Um, so, like our kids go to school just a couple of blocks from where we live, and so if I didn't commute all the way downtown for my job, then our we might live in this, you know vast city <laughs> but but the scope of the, the of the city that we actually inhabit is just a few blocks in every direction right and so we interact with yeah. our neighbors and right yeah, it's like four blocks <laughs> and that's pretty typical actually i read that that like you're the typical new yorker historically kind of really inhabits seven or eight city blocks that's kind of their thing so you can be in the middle of all this and and not be learning from it and not be changed by it you just in it right and so what I found is that people have a very limited frame. I think you're right that the, 
nationally, we do share values as Americans. Um, I think that there's probably a range of like 12 or 15 American values and everybody holds seven or eight of them and really emphasizes those. And, and if you're people, if you're emphasizing a different set than the other people, you might agree on the others, but those kind of fall to the you know background for certain people. Um, but I think that the issue for me is that people are just, they don't know what they don't know. And they typically, all of us listen to radio, read media, follow personalities, et cetera, that basically reinforce our limited perception rather oh than broadening it. Oh boy. Um, and so then you get the perception that because I listen to that guy somewhere else in America who agrees with me that I, I now have this broad scope when really it's, it's narrow um, it's no narrow, it's no broader than it was before. You're just kind of choosing voices that reinforce your biases. Right. And I think that that's what we've, um, I think that that's what's happening is we all have filters that we cultural filters, socioeconomic filters, you know, gender, all those things affect how we view the world. And rather than actively correcting them, we, we actually actively reinforce them. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, um, yeah, I think that that's why it makes it really hard for us to understand each other because reinforcing our own biases and then we're listening to sources that demonize people who have different ones and then we just get more and more worked up about how awful the other person is yeah. um, without ever really stopping to ask ourselves if the things that we believe are true and if the stereotypes are accurate and if the news we're receiving is fair and impartial, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> else. Um if it agrees with me, then I like it. And if it doesn't, then I don't. It's fake news. And that becomes the sort of world. And then that begins, obviously, to have all kinds of implications for our faith. Because that doesn't stop when we read the Bible. It doesn't stop when we choose a church. It doesn't stop when we start discipleship. And so if we've got all of that affects not just the you know, political dialogue, but absolutely everything we do. That's good. I know for me, uh, I used to kind of live in the echo chamber of whatever uh, sounded good and it makes you feel good. And so you just keep listening. And now I know when I'm reading stuff that doesn't sound good or is challenging because then I'm cranky. So I, <laughs> I, can, uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I can easily discern, okay, I must, be, uh, I must actually be reading uh, stuff that's kind of from all sides because some of it makes me smile and some of it makes me really upset. Uh, <laughs> As you said that, because sometimes people, when they ask how, like, this is part of the problem is, says you don't see what you don't see. Then, like, how do I uncover them? Yeah. And I think one good question is, what makes you mad? Yeah, what makes right? you angry? Like, that's a good <laughs> way to find a bias. Yeah. If, if you read this thing, you're like, that makes me so, and you're like, are those idiots who believe such and such? Right. Like, great. Pause there. Uh -huh. a, okay, pause there, yeah. Some, somebody's <laughs> touching a bias. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you know, I like what you said about the, the values thing and how we don't necessarily recognize it in other people. Uh, you brought up South Americans, and I'm originally from Los Angeles. So uh, Mexicans, Hispanics, uh, I grew up surrounded by them. Many of them were, were friends growing up. My culture was shaped by that. And I often get, get very cranky uh, <laughs> when I hear people, you know, just really bashing immigration, really, you know, wanting to build the wall, wanting to uh, kind of close ourselves off from these other countries or these other people. And what I often tell them is the vast majority, regardless of what you're hearing from others, the vast majority are simply people trying to flee bad situations, bad countries, bad environments to find a better life for their family, which is the exact same thing you would do the moment you felt that your family was threatened. You would do the exact same thing. You would travel. Other people. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you would, you would travel far off. You would, you would work any kind of job you could. You would work tireless hours. You would go ahead and live in a house where multiple people might be living. All these things that we look down upon uh, those individuals for are actually things that we should really look at as something as, as a valuable character uh, in what these people are willing to do for their families just to give them a better life. Right. So I'm glad you brought that point up because I think I think we overlook that. And you're right. We do not recognize values in others. 
help you see your hierarchy of values, right? So like if you, we live in a neighborhood that's predominantly Dominican. And as one of my good Dominican friends will tell you that the gift of Dominicans is if you invite three to a party, they'll all three bring their own music and they'll all play it at the same volume. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and he means that as like, isn't that exciting? I'm like, Oh my goodness. I'm introverted enough that the, the very idea you know, stresses me out. But the, uh, when we first moved into this apartment, like the very first evening, there was this loud, uh, Caribbean music on the sidewalk until late in the, you know, late in the night. And it, it really annoyed me the first night. The second night, I thought, I'm going to go down there and say something. When I went downstairs, it was like two or three multi-generational families, grandparents down to young kids, sitting on the sidewalk, playing dominoes, dancing, talking. And I thought, me to be annoyed by it because I thought, I would love to have a multi-generational <laughs> party every weekend, right? Like, But I don't have, I don't right. live that close to family and I don't have, you know, et cetera. But I thought, you know, th- it helped me see what a value that, uh, like, a certain level of, of, uh, noise, not, how do I say this? The sort of like, a, a kind of a suburban value of like, you keep your business, your business, I'll keep my business, my business, you keep it to a reasonable sound. Let's stay out of each other's way. A lot of that goes away in the city in general, cause you're close together, but it's, but, uh, especially different cultures value, you know, take the party onto the street rather than take the party into the house. And I could say that I valued family, but in that moment, what I really valued was quiet. And so it mm. kind of helps to <laughs> expose a, like, really, I, I want you to love your family, but I want you to love them somewhere else and in a different way, right? Like, <laughs> and I, I, Yeah, I want you to love them how I would love exactly. mine. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Which is quietly <laughs> and earlier. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah that reminds yeah. me of, um, was it the story at the beginning of the book that you wrote? Uh, I guess we can talk about the book for like two seconds now. Sure. Um, and not from around here. Uh, the, the one, I think, right before you guys moved to Chicago, you and your, uh, I, think, I think you guys weren't married yet uh, at the time your fiancé cabin in the woods and just the the different set of eyes that went with <laughs> Bob, I didn't say ears I started with eyes because I know what you're laughing at um, yeah. yeah no the different set of eyes with uh, going out into the middle of the woods and then looking up and seeing the stars and how you saw something that was so beautiful and fantastic and how uh, you're at the time fiance was creeped the freak out because yeah. that's where uh, that's where they hide the body and I was like oh dang she's she's kind of right but look, yeah. I mean you were trying to be romantic I get it yeah. um, you can tell you can tell the story about your daddy and the shotgun but, yeah. um, you know I just I think that it is amazing to me um, that you know we 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 all miss the understanding of this one very common and simple principle and that is perception is reality. Right. Um, and I think that is one of the main reasons why we do have such division. It's not just about the echo chamber. It's about um, the environmental concept and the fact that people do not want to comprehensively expound upon their world to recognize exactly how one and two dimensional it is. Yep. Just uh, that, but before we go any further, just kind of commend you for wanting to shed some light on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, I, I want to, you know, and you are now that person who gets to walk us through that process. Uh, when you very, when you first, because you know, some people listening to this right now, they're gonna realize that their world may be very, very diminished, mm-hmm. um, and they may need to expound. Uh, when you first, well, first of all, tell the story about uh, the, the shotgun, and then from there, kind of talk <laughs> about how you and you and your now wife uh, initially navigated through that process hmm. uh, for us a little bit, because I think some people realize that they're going to need to navigate just like that um, if yeah. they if they haven't started the process already. The, the short version is the um, in the middle of nowhere on a river in Arkansas, and um, it's a really spectacular place. And at night, when you turn off the lights, it is you, you can't see yourself in the dark, right? I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face; it's that dark. <laughs> And my I can't wife see who, me anyway, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I basically glow, so I uh, yeah, you can't I couldn't see, I couldn't see me. And uh, I grew up in the city. Uh, I flipped the light switch off on the porch. I said, "Isn't this spectacular?" And she's like, "Whatever, let's go inside." And I said, "No, look at this, look at the stars." And she's like, "It's fine. Turn the light back on." And I said, no, isn't this romantic? And she's like, there's a reason that horror movies are all set in cabins in the woods. Like, let's go inside. And I thought, no, that's, no, you're wrong. And I couldn't tell you why. I mean, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I thought, here, we're looking at something that in my view is objectively beautiful. And in her view is objectively 
terrifying. And uh, <laughs> you should have been like, honey, the stars are made to worship. So will I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she was open to a devotional at that moment. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so yes, we, uh, we went into the house and uh, she slept in the guest room and I slept up on the loft and the next morning at, I mean, at barely daylight, I heard my dad talking downstairs and within a few seconds heard a gun go off and sat up straight. <laughs> and my dad was sitting inside the house with a rifle that most of it was outside the house. And he was shooting at something down, you know, downfield. And uh, I asked him the only logical question, which is, what are you doing? You know, it's like six in the morning. So what are you doing? <laughs> And he, he answered with what he thought was the only logical answer, which was, well, if I open the door all the way, they fly off. And I'm like, no, the question is not, wh- why is the door partially open? The question is, why are you firing a gun at <laughs> six in the morning? And so I thought, again, this is like, you know, okay, we're all experienced. And I had grown up with that, obviously, morning from the house. That was new, but... Um, <laughs> But at that point, my wife comes out of the guest room and I kind of see her looking at all of us and was like, oh my gosh, we are, we're weirdos. And I didn't see it before now, but now that I see it, you know, <laughs> you can't unsee it. So it's... What, uh, what I gather from this is that your experience in Arkansas and New York is probably similar. I mean, 6 a.m. gum shots, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty standard. Uh, you're you know? fired. <laughs> Well, you know, actually, yeah. that, that's what we're trying to prove here. It's, it's yeah. the same no matter where you go. So That's right. Know, that's true. Anyway, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the the juxtaposition of his answer. Well, you know, I have the door cracked. It's like, well, I'm, I'm using the shotgun because of the spread versus the AR. No, no. that's not. That, I don't need clarification <laughs> on that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let the man answer the question. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so I think, yeah, we, we ended up, it was actually the writing of Not From Around Here that was really helpful for my wife and me because there were things that we, you know, suburbia was new to both of us. And so I think neither of us had to really wrestle with uh, a lot of things while we lived in the Chicago suburbs. Um, but for the couple of years we were back in Arkansas, back into a kind of a small, largely monocultural kind of place. Uh, that was difficult for her. And so we processed things there. It, difficult because it was strange and un, unfamiliar. Then we moved to Manhattan, which I was not, you know, didn't have any frame of reference for. And many, much of it was familiar for her and not for me. And so so we were processing together and had the gift of kind of two different experiences in one family to be able to kind of process now, anybody who's married knows that two people can look at the same situation and interpret it very, very differently. And so, um, you know, you can be from the same town and still have disagreements, but I think it was really helpful as I was trying to articulate, like, this is what the city's like. She's like, no, if you describe it that way, people will think this. And I thought, yeah, that's a good point. Like, she was sensitive to what might sound like criticism of the city, and I was sensitive to what might sound like criticism of rural and small town places and um, and so it was, uh, I think having her as a, 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 a leavening, you know, to help me see things that I couldn't see has been really helpful. And in general, I think the only way you get a broader perspective than the one that you have is through relationships. It, you, you have to actively seek out people yes. who have a different point of view, not with the, mm. um, goal of destroying them, <laughs> but with the goal of learning from them and saying, you know, help me see what I don't see and help me know where I got, where I got this wrong. Um, and most, most of us don't do that. And society is geared, whether or not it's intentional or not, society is geared to keep that from happening in the sense that everything is kind of, um, affinity based, right? You go to this restaurant because you like this food. And you go to that church because you like that music. And all of that is kind of cultural. It's reinforcing cultural biases, right? And so culture yeah. sorts us into different groups. Um, and it is a very unnatural thing to find people to dialogue with who are different from you, um, especially for that, if that's the basis of your dialogue, right? Like, let's get to know each other because we disagree. 
I don't, people don't do that. Um, <laughs> but you really have to do that. You really have to do that. You do. You do. I like that you say, you know, relationships, that's key. But you also said active, actively finding them. I think so much of our, our perceptions, our worldview, uh, what we believe is passively ingrained in us. And That's we right. have to actively be fighting against that, actively being aware of the things that that might keep us from, you know, acknowledging different points of view or experiencing different cultures. So that's that's big point. And I think this is a this is a th- a thought. Excuse me, that I'm still developing. So I'm pretty sure it's not heresy, but it could be wrong. Um, <laughs> that I think that evangelicals have an especially difficult time with this because. There is so much emphasis in evangelicalism on our belief and choice that I think it's hard for us to admit that there are things that we believe or value that we didn't choose. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, because our, our values, our worldview, or whatever, we, we perceive as being carefully and intentionally constructed by ourselves. Um, and, and some of it is, but a whole lot of it isn't. And mm-hmm. I think it's hard for us to admit that we could kind of believe something on accident or that we could have, you know, for me growing up, secular humanism was the, the enemy that we were fighting. It's hard for us to admit that we have been secularized because we've spent all of our time resisting secularism, right? Like, right. But I think you have to be wow. able to come to those kinds of conclusions that like, oh, crap, this happened to me too. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't successfully defend against all these ideas. They've, I've been absorbing them forever. Um, and I think that that's harder to do when, when your faith is so tied up in all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm since, I mean, I, I say that to be not judgmental, but to be kind of, that's the pastoral. This is a hard thing. Uh, it's a challenging thing for people to take part, a threatening thing uh, yeah. for people to do. And I think, yeah, I think our faith, not our faith as in Jesus, but our, our the, the unique form of it, American evangelicalism, actually makes that hard. Yeah, and the rationalization is wrapped up in if I if I believe these things because I'm a Christian, well, then it's be, I believe these things because God is Almighty. So why would I challenge that? I have every right to believe this because God is helping me believe this, and that's right. <laughs> and not understanding the the difference between what is is true of what God wants us to believe and what's being filtered through the church and and humans. <laughs> exactly. And I think that, you know, for me it was the the thing that made me initially aware of this and it took a long time for me to my college roommate was from Austria and he was a conservative Christian and I was a conservative Christian. But being a conservative Christian in Austria is different from being a conservative <laughs> Christian in Arkansas. Yeah. And so, you know, when he wanted to smoke a cigar to celebrate or drink a beer at dinner or to do whatever, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I thought you were a Christian, right? Like, I just couldn't even get my head around that. <laughs> well, then call me a heathen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I think big. at some point I had to realize, like, what do I believe because I'm a Christian, to your point? And what do I believe because I'm an American Christian? Mm. And if there's a difference, then how do I sort that out? Like, what's the, how much of it is okay that it's different? How much of it is that I've actually missed biblical truth and, you know, actual, like pure Christianity or something because of my cultural background? Where am I right and he's wrong or whatever? But it, I had, it had never even occurred to me to ask those kinds of questions before that relationship. Uh, and I knew him and loved him and trusted him. And so I knew that his faith was sincere and that instead of being comforting was actually more difficult in some ways because then I couldn't just dismiss the differences. I had to figure out what to do with them, you know. And um, so. Darn you being friends with people who don't believe the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Definitely can't start that process. But no, I I think that speaks directly to um, stays really, really heavy on my heart. It's just the indirect nature of eisegesis and how many people uh, don't recognize that they're taking certain understandings about Jesus out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a good example, I was listening to uh, Dr. Darius Daniels yesterday. He just, he put something on Instagram and he was, uh, he was trying to make a point. And if y'all want to, y'all can go ahead and listen to it. We don't need to focus on that right now. 
he referenced a prayer that was given, I think like back in 1964 or something. And it was an amazing sounding prayer. And he was like, well, you know, it doesn't matter uh, who did the prayer, but the nature of it was, it was, it was prayed at the beginning of some KKK convention. And I was just uh, like, oh God, that's a really good prayer. Uh, <laughs> why the hell was I prayed? <laughs> but, you know, I, I just, I think it speaks yeah. directly to that point. We can really, uh, be dead on the head with the understanding of our faith, but the projection of, of where we're sending it can be way, way off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, to that extent, you know, again, it was just like, I'm sure that there were Christians in Nazi Germany that were definitely Christians uh, mm-hmm. during the lynching era. As a matter of fact, the church had a lot to do with the lynching era. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, now, so a bunch of different situations. Um in the process of explaining to people the single story, because uh, mm. I really loved how you you uh, you kind of polarized that in a couple of areas in your book, because I think it was necessary. While talking about some stuff that we're going through um, as a nation right now with uh, the killings of Ahmaud Arbery and, uh, mm-hmm. and Sean Reed, because uh, I'm pretty sure some people on one side, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if you've seen this yet, Dev, but uh, I think there's a Facebook group or some other group out there right now that's uh, justice for... Uh, the two dudes that actually killed Ahmad. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I was going to say, the thing that stuck out to me last night was the 12,000 people who were a part of it. And uh, I'm sure that number is only going to get larger. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, so they have their worldview where where they yeah. think that this is justified. At the same time, there's another worldview that was just, uh, is still speaking out. I love the fact that it's speaking out. I'm, I'm kind of mad that it took so long for something like this to happen and everybody to have to be home uh, to mm. see it, to ri- finally realize that, like, speak to the single story and uh, address those two things for me. Single story is that, um, uh, and this was uh, it came to me from the novelist uh, Dichi. I can never, I'd have to see it again to remember how to pronounce her last name. Novelist who. She talks about the the fact that you know when you uh, really the only thing that you hear about Africa is that it is a war torn, disease ridden, you know, poverty stricken culture. You know, and by a culture, right, that automatically homogenizes a whole continent worth of vastly different backgrounds and etc. Right. But there's this sort of one story that's been told for a very long time to describe what Africa is. And it's dangerous, it's impoverished, it's whatever. But yeah. she grew up in a middle-class family. Her dad was a professor, I think, and her mom was an administrator, and they had household help, and they, you know, etc. And she was, because she was a part of this very diverse um, picture of Africa, more inputs that she didn't have a single story about Africa. Um, but she also didn't have a single story about America because America exports so many of our stories through media that you can kind of get the like, here's what it's, you know, tough life on the street story or tough life from, you know, the hill country story or the success story, whatever, you know, there's all these different kinds of American experiences. And then she gets to college and her college roommate, you know, asks her about, you know, what's your favorite, play me some of your favorite music. And she played some sort of, you know, pop western pop music and her roommate was i think both surprised and disappointed that it wasn't tribal something you know um (laughs) and she was shocked uh, that she knew how to use a stove and she because the single story that this american roommate had of africa the possibility that they would have anything in common right and so i think that so I, i use that to say that i think what happens in the u.s with especially political things, is we have this sort of single story about uh, the rural America. You know, it's losing its industries, it's aging, it's, uh, you know, people are are scared and they're, they hate immigrants and they're uh, fundamentalist religious and they're all these kinds of things. And then the, they have a single story about the cities, which is they're all wealthy liberals who are trying to destroy America with their Hollywood values and their whatever else, right? And that we use are so strong that we filter all of our experiences through them. And so to get to the, well, it's are always dangerous. Uh, and white men are the oppressed uh, people in this country because they can't 
exercise their freedoms, they're always sus- suspected, you know, et cetera, then this becomes confirmation of that story, right? Mm-hmm. This is just one more instance of that story and it reinforces that single story for you. On the other hand, mom, right, who's terrified that her sons are out and have to be extra careful to do every normal thing that any uh, other white son would uh, do. There's this extra layer of stress and fear and worry and whatever. Then this becomes another sort of instance of it's just another hashtag. It's just, you know, it's this sort of... And so you have these sort of single... Everybody's reduced. All the complexity of everything is reduced down to a single narrative. To a Christian point of view, this kind of single story of... Christ and culture, for example, that I grew up with was like, you know, we are the, we are the, um, we're upholding both American values and Christian values and secular humanists are trying to destroy America with their lies about evolution and whatever else and we have to resist. Everything that happens reinforces that, reinforces it. And so I think even of all the conspiracy theories, for example, right now about the coronavirus, mm. I think it's it's one of those things that, you know, if it's easier to believe that a fired former employee of this government official has the secret uh, to, you know, shine light on this global conspiracy theory than it is to believe that the establishment is actually telling you the truth. Jordan, let's have this guy on every week because he'll take some heat off of me. I'm usually the one going, let's talk about the pandemic. <laughs> yes, that's right. But I think, for example, like the fact that the, the fact that a science has to be peer-reviewed, you know, to be recognized as authoritative, I think if your single story is that everything's fixed and uh, it's all a power play of the elite, the fact that it's peer-reviewed actually makes it less believable to you. And the fact that some guy, you know, right. at Kroger knows a guy that saw something, like, that's believable because your single story is that everybody in power is out to get you and that the truth can only come to me <laughs> through these sides. You know what I'm saying? I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I'm trying to figure out why because there's a lot of this going on. And I mean, I could be wrong because I'm not a doctor by any stretch, but... I feel like there's something empowering to feel like you know better or you know more than somebody else. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who do kind of fall for these things tend to be people who who feel like society might be leaving them behind or who feel like, you know, maybe I, I don't have a degree in this or I'm not as well-spoken in that. And so if there's something they can grab onto that gives them some sort of a a leg up or some sort of confidence in knowing, you know, being in the know, it, it's easy to then grab onto that, I think. And, and it's sad because I keep telling people I posted probably five or six uh, different things that I saw yesterday because this sharing of... <laughs> I don't even like calling it fake news because it's just lies. Uh, we should just call it what it is. Uh, <laughs> but sharing that stuff is really becoming something that's preying on people. Yeah, It's preying on people that that I care about, people that I think are good people, and, and they're just getting duped into these things that for some reason they think that, you know, upwards of 100,000 people can keep this little secret. Meanwhile, if your neighbor cheated on his taxes, you'd probably find out, you know, like... <laughs> Like, <laughs> well, we know well, you'd find out. Yeah. Government, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, everything can be applied in a lot of different directions. And it can be that, you know, big business is out to get you and it's so everything's a conspiracy. It can be that the government's out to get you and everything's a conspiracy. It can be that certain populations in America are somehow less American or somehow less valuable or whatever. And whatever the single story is for you to interpret every additional piece of data, right? And I think that the story is so strong. One thing I mentioned in the book is I think alternative source of uh, information or any new experience exception, right? So Mexicans, but there's this guy that you work with with Mexi- who's Mexican and you like him, and your brain just sort of categorizes as like, well, sure, but not him, right? You know, but it's still all those other people. He's the outlier. Black friend rule. Yeah. You, it's not an exception that challenges the rule. It's an exception that proves the rule, right? 
uh, contradictory data in a way that reinforces your thought process because then it becomes to something else or sort of rationalize it away as something else. Yeah. And I think this is a real problem because what it teaches us is I can't ever listen to or learn from anyone who doesn't already agree with me. Yeah. That's, the, that's the fundamental kind of uh, assumption. And that is so dangerous and it's so easy to exploit mm-hmm. um, that someone who, however they do it, earns the trust and is willing to manipulate that trust It's an especially area about, and it's something that we ought to be opposed to. A Christian, and then for the rest of our life, our job is not to grow and develop and change. Our job is to stay exactly how we are right now, (laughs) right? Or avoid a lot of the things that might keep me from being the change that that God wants in me. You know, so I'm going to completely avoid. Anything that's not Christ-centered, I'm I'm not going to consume anything. I'm not going to hang out with anyone who doesn't believe the way I believe because it could ultimately undermine my faith in God and and I'll lose my salvation. And (laughs) that's That's exactly right. right. That's how Paul did it. You know, who carried on after him. You know, they didn't go anywhere. They just they just stayed (laughs) around the campfire and hung out. That's all they did. That's right. That's good. You know, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about that right now, man. You just I, I just had a mind blown moment. You know, um, I do feel like I've, I've never put this in this kind of context. And maybe so if your mind ain't blown, whatever, it works for me. <laughs> uh, but I, I really feel like um, free thinking mm. uh, is becoming obsolete. Mm. And that's a scary thing because that's really what the Bible tells us to do. It tells us to get wisdom. And what mm. that ultimately means in, in this case is that students is the one thing that America is telling everyone not to do which is to investigate and to exhaust in your investigation so you can come to to whatever terms. You know, I was, uh, I don't know if you actually listened to it, Devin, but um, I, I had my students listen to a podcast from uh, Michael Heiser. Hmm. And it had to do with head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 hmm. and ultimately how Paul told them to keep their head covered. Uh, cover your ears, boys and girls, if you're too young, but whatever, <laughs> uh, was because technically... Um, a woman's hair back in the day was the equivalent of a man's testicles. <laughs> and in their culture, legitimized because of, I think it was Hippocrates, you know, doctors take the Hippocratic oath. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that's what he was telling people back in the day. Now, of course, we have a much better understanding of presents now. It's just, <laughs> it's just cute. it's just cute well it's funny that you bring that one up because i didn't hear that but in in reading uh brandon's book i just read today about uh that whole breakdown and that it had a lot more to do with economic status and not to do with a a sexual tendency and uh, i think uh you know jordan you talk about free thinking um it, it going away that's because free thinking is oddly expensive and what I find when going into people who don't believe the same things I believe, and they'll be like, well, I'm open to anything. And then you share a thought that's opposite. And they're like, well, if you disagree, you can just unfollow. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, yeah. wait. <laughs> when I heard somebody describe this recently, read this all out exactly, I think it's important. But the um, somebody described that we've shifted from a culture, uh, even in liberal culture, right? So like conservative culture is maybe got here first, what you believe and think is actually less important than what group you belong to. And that right now we basically are prioritizing belonging over believing. So it used to be that I think when I was a kid, the sort of free thinking thing was like, I'm sort of alienating any party in the pursuit of the truth. But right now we can't afford to alienate our party. Right. Um, we don't want to get canceled. We don't want to get whatever, uh, you know. So we have all these signals to signify kind of all the, that you, belo- the, you belong to all the right things, all the right causes. I have any idea why or what those things mean. Um, but the, the rigor, you don't apply the rigor to actually figuring out what you believe. The rigor is sort of maintaining that perception of belonging to all the right things. Mm-hmm some godly tend- impulse in that, that we are made to belong. Um, but the issue is that we subdivide that down into people who are in roughly my socioeconomic group and who are in my ethnic group and who are in my 
you know, theological persuasion and et cetera, coming back to the, the unity and diversity of the Christ that we, we are a theoretically unified body that is actually very disunified, right? Mm-hmm. The diversity is not the problem. The disunity is the problem. Diversity is a gift if we're unified because then the diversity, all the opportunity to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So diversity and disunity, then we're just taking our different points of view hiding them in our little groups and then lobbing grenades at each other, right? And there's there's no advantage to that. Wow. Um, and so I think that if we can figure out then how we, we want to belong uh, and believe, <laughs> those things should go together for us. Uh, <laughs> but I think that we have to start belonging to bigger groups, like a, a intentionally attaching to a group that, that stresses me or that threatens me or that pushes me you know, whether it's theologically or socially or whatever it is, and saying, uh, you know, help me see what the value is. What what can this expose for me, right? Or <laughs> what can this kind of uncover in me that can be helpful in my growth and development? You're going to have to go down and start dancing with the Dominican family now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they yeah. would be very glad to have us. It's just way past my bedtime. <laughs> so. That's the crazy thing is that so many groups are more than willing to bring people in. If you want to find belonging, there's so many groups that are willing to allow you to belong, even as you are, you know? That's right. And yeah. But for some reason, we're just stuck picking sides. And that side picking usually is one or two things that attracts us. And then once we're part of that team, we kind of rationalize or dismiss all the things that would have otherwise not attracted us. Because at this point, I've, I've picked. This is my team. What if I go? I can't go against them. Right. You know, that, that's kind of this weird American sports ideology as well, right? Like, okay, well, I grew up in this area, so I must love this team. And regardless of what they do, and, you know, I, you look at that and go, you know, sports is just entertainment, right? You, you know, ultimately, they just want your money, right? And so if they've run the team terrible for 40 years, why would you keep buying a ticket? <laughs> why would you keep spending money on a jersey? You have the option to just disassociate. <laughs> What you were just saying, though, Brandon, um, you know, not to be super cool again, but I just want to pull up my my tweet that you you liked uh, because it wasn't my tweet. It was actually a retweet. Um, you can talk about him for a second if you want to, too. But uh, I was reading and I saw uh, Timothy Keller this morning tweeted the following thing, and I think it's spot on with what you're talking about. Um, it says, uh, interactions with different cultures help us uh, lose our blinders and slowly but surely move to a more rounded biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, I was telling people that's exactly why I mess with him because Timothy Keller, I, it's just amazing. I think that it's so awesome that he's an old school Presbyterian pastor in the middle of NYC. And I think the last I checked, they got like, what, 10,000 members or something. Just the ability to to hold on to folk with liturgical practice mm-hmm. in a place that is so advanced was just amazing to me. I don't, I don't even know exactly where I want to go with that, but, <laughs> you know. Well, and I think that's one thing that I have seen. I don't, I don't know if everyone would see it if you uh, are just reading the things that Tim writes, but one of the things that you see in the city, even increasingly, is uh, his engagement with Latino pastors in the Bronx who have been, you know, as active and in many ways, as effective in the city, but in a very different cultural context in the roughly, you know, they're, the pastors are roughly the same age. They've been in ministry 30, 40 years. And in the last, you know, however long, they've really started forging alliances together. I admire so deeply Tim open to learning at this point in his career. I think a lot of people would think, well, I've got you know, uh, an image to uphold and I've got a thing that I say and I got to keep saying it the right way so people will keep... And, and he's always constantly engaging those new ideas and trying to sharpen them. And he's somebody that models. He doesn't go into that with the fear that I'm going to stop being a Christian if I listen to this person. It's that I'm probably getting something wrong, so I should probably hear from this person who thinks differently. Mm. And I think that posture is such a helpful one. I'd like to try in my career, maybe if if I successfully redeem the term bias, that maybe that would be one of the things I'd like to accomplish, which is to say that like, I think saying that you have a bias should be about as offensive as you have a nose, which is just to say like, don't we all, you know? (laughs) So I'm not saying that you're a bad person because you're a biased person. I'm just saying that you're a human being 
And being human means that you're biased. Uh Um, And all of us are. If you can get there, then you can recognize the limitations of your own perspective that everybody's short-sighted and we need somebody to help correct our vision um, and that there are big gaps in my Christianity if I don't invite other people into my formation to help me see what I don't see. And I think that that, you know, but I think that you can't even, you can't even get there if you don't start with um, biased, limited, partial, you know, that's where it begins. Which is weird because we all want to embrace and say that we're self-aware. Right. That's what self-awareness is. Like I'm aware of myself and my actions and my belief systems and my, my, oh my gosh, my biases. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to get started because a, my phone is low on battery now. And B, um, you can you can make fun of a lot of things, but you can't touch the enneagram, right? Or you'll get in big trouble. But I think that the oh um, I do think we tend to choose those kinds of ways of of uh, self knowledge that are private. I can take a test and I can read the book and I can discern things on my own about myself. Enneagram, strengths finders, whatever, you know, I'm not down on any of those things, um, except I'm whatever personality type it is that doesn't like personality tests. So, you know, that's the... (laughs) Your biases are showing. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, But I do think that those are safe because they're telling me more about myself and making me feel more aware about myself. Right. It's not the same kind of thing as having... Like, you know, from going from being a majority culture person in a monoculture to being a majority culture person in a minority neighborhood, right? Like, suddenly I go from being the person I can take everything for granted to I can take nothing for granted. At that point, I'd much rather take a personality test than to have that experience, right? Um, But I think that we actually kind of short circuit the process by thinking that if I just dig deeper in myself... I'm going to find all the answers to, you know, to my questions. I think actually you're not going to find anything in there (laughs) until you are with people who can point, who can help you see what you're looking at. Right. Um, So I think introspection is really important, but I think that we don't, we can't actually do it alone. Yeah. And that's where we get the, that journey wrong is that we have to do it with other people. And if we do it with people who are just like us, it may have some value, but it's got really limited value because they're going to see the same things that I see. You're also going to get different results depending on the day you take it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> right. and they've also gotten a lot nicer. You know, it used to be like, if you're bad at working in teams, it would be like, you're bad at, with people. And now it's like, <laughs> you're, you're better off with fewer distractions. <laughs> right. It's like, wait. Yeah, right. So you never actually learn that you're just bad with other people. <laughs> right. America has also gotten softer in the process. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Going on. So, <laughs> you know, that's good. Well, man, you know, God, I'd, I'd love to continue this conversation, but I also don't want you to just go ghost in the middle of answering probably the yeah. most prolific <laughs> question ever. Uh, I'll just say, let's chop this up. You don't have another book coming out anytime soon. We should do this again. This is cool. I'd love to. Yeah, um, it's definitely fun. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll let you ride for now, sir. We got you, know, we'll, you got more questions coming. Just just look forward to it. Um, <laughs> Thank I do. Also, just feel free to check all my other random tweets. You know, if anything, just move. Oh my spirit. goodness, you're, you're so shameless. <laughs> You're so shameless. I'm going to send you my Twitter handle when we're done here. (laughs) I don't even do anything. I'm a 40 year old father. I don't got time for that. (laughs) Actually, the funny thing was the big joke I was talking about how you had a chance to expand in your world. I was like, bro, what if you didn't know about sneaker culture? Oh, oh you would. Be, oh, yeah, exactly. See, I'd, I'd be lost. I'd be lost without footwear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, ba- I barely get to wear them out anymore because I don't no. go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's a saddest story ever, but we don't need to reflect now. We, just, we, we got hope. We got hope. Yes. Well, Brandon, my man, thank you once again for coming on, brother. We most certainly appreciate you. We appreciate the insight. We appreciate your willingness to write, write books that have people saying, I'm sorry, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just continue to encourage you to do so, man. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. You and your family, stay safe, man. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you. Likewise, brother.
Eye to Eye is a production of Inspired One Enterprises. Engineering by Devin Chandler. Editing and production, Jordan Brown. Marketing and media, Justice Swango. Thanks again for listening to the latest and greatest episode. Please don't forget to follow us on FB, Inspired One Enterprises. On Insta at I underscore the number two underscore I podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave five stars and a generous review because you love us and want us to be successful as we do you. Thank you once again for rocking with us. And remember, be inspired to inspire because that's what the inspired one does. Peace.